Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I am your host, Shane Phillips. Our co-host today is Pavo Monkinen, and our interview features Professor Nicholas Morantz and Dr. Echo Zhang of UC Irvine. As we've mentioned in recent episodes, California cities are in the process of updating their eight-year housing plans in a state-mandated document known as the housing element. This approach, where cities have to plan for a predetermined number of units reserved for low and moderate income households, as well as unrestricted market rate units, is really just one strategy for managing growth and trying to improve housing affordability. In a number of northeastern states, they take a very different approach that doesn't involve much planning. Instead, they set low-income housing goals for their cities and give developers a variety of streamlining options, appeals, and exemptions to help them build affordable homes in those cities if their goals are not being met. The planning and appeals-based approaches both have strengths and weaknesses, and as we discussed, there's a lot of variation even within each of those categories. The four northeastern states that Nick and Echo evaluate in one of their studies all fall under the appeals-based system category, but the way they design and enforce their programs makes a real difference for production of affordable homes, and the same could be said for planning-focused strategies like those in California. Even for us, this is a weedsy topic, but it's also an extremely important one because these state mandates have a huge impact on the overall production of housing, the amount of housing built specifically for low and moderate income households, and the distribution of that housing between different jurisdictions and between higher and lower resource neighborhoods within jurisdictions. Understanding how different states try to achieve these goals and how successful those efforts have been or not is really essential for those of us who care about housing affordability and equity. I learned a ton from this interview and these papers, and I am sure you will too. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and you can contact me with questions or research paper ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu, or you can just tweet at me. All right, let's talk to Nick and Echo. All right, well, I'm so excited to welcome our two guests to the podcast this week, Nicholas Morantz, Associate Professor at the UC Irvine School of Social Ecology, and Echo Zhang, a postdoctoral researcher at UCI as well. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining us to talk about this extremely weedsy, esoteric topic that is state housing planning systems and their impacts. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having us. And then Shane, you want to ask them a a provocative question to get us going? Yes, very, very provocative, uh, one we've asked before. So we try to ask this, we're trying to make it more of a consistent thing. If you were giving us a tour of your city, um, what would be the number one thing, the top thing you'd want to show us? And you're in Irvine, which is an interesting place. So you can you can choose to make it an Irvine tour, or it can be, you know, wherever you're from, somewhere you've lived in the past, totally up to you. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm living in Irvine right now, but I actually want to take you to the city where I went to high school for, Guangzhou. So it's a Chinese city in southern part of China. And Pavel, you're doing a wave. I, I assume you've been there. Or uh, not? Yeah, I love Guangzhou. <laughs> Pavel's very excited. Fantastic city. I used to go there frequently. Yeah. So first thing, we're gonna get some OG dim sum. So awesome dim sum places <laughs> and food Yum. aside. Um, we're gonna try the metro system. Of course, not during the peak hour. Um, peak hour is extremely packed, but 
Other than that, um, I would say the transportation system is very convenient and mm-hmm. and clean and and really nice. That's how I got around um, during my three years high school there. And it would it's also fun to just walk around random residential areas. You would find yourself surrounded by thirty to fifty story buildings in like a really nice. Complex, so it's a totally different urban vibe from urban areas in the United States, especially here in Irvine. And we we could make this a South China podcast instead of state housing planning <laughs> the United States because I want to talk about the urban village redevelopment stuff. I don't know if you've been following all the different ways. I read that, that's that been paper. Happening. We could put some stuff in the show notes. There's some really interesting redevelopment stuff. And have you been on the high speed rail to Hong Kong? Um. It was completed. I don't know, five years ago or something, or more. No, um, I've written the metro or train, right? The normal train. Hong Kong. Yeah, but not probably not the high speed rail. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hong Kong is really packed, though, like next level packed compared to cities in mainland China. But surprisingly uh, livable, I would say. Like you, from the outside, it seems hyper dense, but it's a livable city. Sorry. Because a lot, you can do a lot there. It's really fun. <laughs> Nick. All right. Well, I'm going to take you around, Irvine. <laughs> yes. I was hoping one of you would. And I'm just going to tell you what I actually do when when folks are visiting Irvine, which is I take mm-hmm. them to Crystal Cove State Park, um, which is a short drive from the Irvine campus. And it's uh, a, a stretch of beautiful preserved beach and inland chaparral canyons. And uh, there's a, a, a slight housing angle because there are a bunch of old beach beach shacks that have been preserved and some of which have been refurbished and some of which are in the process of being refurbished. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great walk and a great place to clear your head after you've spent a day uh, working on complex issues of state housing policy. <laughs> <laughs> you could just reflect on how ineffective it has been in that area. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about, uh, this is going to be a little bit of an odyssey here today. We're talking about a couple papers authored by Nick and Echo and a report that they co-authored, all of which address this issue of state intervention in housing plans in different ways. And so state intervention here in California has really become kind of central to how we approach housing policy in recent years with laws that make it easier to build accessory dwelling units, changes to the regional housing needs assessment, and the housing element that are requiring cities to plan for more housing than they did in the past. Uh, Most recently, we have Senate Bill 9, which allows up to four homes to be built on most single-family zone parcels in the state. There's a lot to learn from our own state's history, I think, but we're not the first to resort to state intervention, especially when it comes to planning for low-income housing. And so to get us started, I think it'd be helpful, you know, just to get a primer on why places have resorted to state intervention in the first place. Housing and land use policy have traditionally been left to local governments, as we know, with state governments mostly not interfering with local decisions, especially on things like zoning. So what have been some of the consequences of this deference to local control? Like what's at stake here? Yeah, so one of the one of the direct consequences that we don't have enough housing to be built because in general there is strong local op- opposition to 
housing. And mm -hmm. what's at stake is that housing gets really expensive. And I'm sure we all know about that. We live in Southern California. And if you look at the Bay Area, that's even more expensive. And you have other related consequences, like people have to commute really long to their work oftentimes because right. they don't find housing affordable that's near to their jobs or other everyday locations. And in areas like Southern California, people often have to double up with other family members or um, non-family members to lower lower the cost of housing. And that could potentially have like a public health implication, especially mm -hmm. like these days in, in COVID time and you live in a crowded housing unit. Yeah, of the top 1% most overcrowded census tracts or zip codes in the country, about half of them are just in Southern California alone. So we have a really severe overcrowding problem for sure. I, I would also add that there's a civil rights and social, a civil rights angle here as well mm -hmm. in that local land use regulation was uh, has been used as a tool of racial and ethnic segregation um, in addition to income-based segregation. And so state intervention might be necessary in order to undo that legacy of racist local land use regulation. Yeah, yeah. And so to address at least some of these issues, a few different models for state planning or state intervention have evolved over time. And our colleague at UC Davis, Chris Elmendorf, he refers to these as the Northeastern model and the West Coast model. But as, as Pavo has said and others have said, there is a lot of overlap between these two approaches. So um, several Northeastern states use what you call state affordable housing appeal systems or S-A-H-A-S. I don't know if you say SAHAS or, or what here, but I'm just going to say appeal systems maybe from now on. Um, and they, they have these to make sure that low-income housing gets built and it's actually distributed across jurisdictions. So it's not just about building enough of it, but making sure it's built in a, a diversity of places and high-income places as well as low-income places. So can you give us an overview of these different approaches, this sort of Northeastern model and the, the West Coast model? Sure. Um, I think the simplest difference is the West Coast model tends to rely very heavily on planning. Um, whereas the Northeastern model doesn't necessarily involve planning at all. And so in the in one of the papers that we're going to be discussing today, we lay out four attributes of an appeals system. So the first is that if a local government hasn't fulfilled its fair share housing obligations, and these are obligations that are established by state law, then uh, proposed projects that have below market rate housing don't need to comply with local zoning requirements, right? So mm -hmm. that that's that's pretty important. So for example, a multifamily project might be built in an area zoned for single family use. Insert mind-blowing emoji for Californians here. <laughs> what could be worse? Yeah, I think I think that's something that's underappreciated by Californians is that you know this is happening in Massachusetts. Um, yeah, and so the second piece is that if a developer proposes a qualifying project, then that developer can request an expedited appeals procedure if the local government denies the proposal or if the local government approves it, subject to conditions that render the project economically infeasible. 
that that's important because time is money in particular in real estate development and this can really reduce uh, developers legal fees and carrying costs and so the third feature is that there's a shifting of the burden of proof so normally uh, in land use law local government there's a presumption that local government's actions are valid under an appeals system like the ones that we're describing that presumption shifts so the local government has to uh, has to has to demonstrate that its regulations are valid rather than the developer having to show that the regulations are invalid so that favors the developer means that the developer is more likely to win and then what happens when the developer wins is also really important when the developer wins the developer generally is entitled to a building permit so you could challenge a local zoning ordinance and win and then the court would say well the local government has to change its zoning well that's not a that's not a win for the project because then the local right. government goes back revises its zoning ordinance takes a while to do that and maybe the revised zoning ordinance isn't revised in a way that makes the project feasible so how does uh, how does that compare so that's sort of the the northeastern model yeah. You know, in the case of the West Coast or California style, at least until recently, is it more just, you know, we say you have to make plans for this and then it's just sort of up in the air after that? There's not a lot of follow up. Is that kind of the <laughs> our, our approach here? Yes. I mean, it, it, it has it has been until recently. Yeah, yeah. I would say <laughs> there are more follow ups than before, slightly more. Um, yeah. But yeah, in California is mostly a planning mandate. So the state government have this imposes this housing obligation and then local governments need to plan for this housing target or obligation. And actually, there are many detailed requirements in state laws in terms of how these plans need to be generated, if that counts as part of the follow up. Um, but these requirements are are fairly new. I think they were slowly added to state laws beginning in 2017. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, so. I've just been teaching a class on this topic and I came up with what I think is a useful historical anecdote to, to kind of separate the two in people's minds. Um, so if you will, can we go back to 1969 and think about California and Massachusetts? Because California's housing element law started in 1969 and so did 40B which was the first of these uh, appeals systems. And California now is a democratic stronghold, but in 1969, they were voting for Nixon and you know it was a conservative state. And so the uh, housing element law was actually started by the Building Industry Association. It was not an open up the suburbs kind of bill, which was you know the, the Massachusetts 40B was a civil rights bill to directly attack snob zoning and open up these exclusionary suburbs. California's bill, I was thinking of a good analogy, it's like a open up the farmland bill, right? Mm -hmm. Because the mm -hmm. idea of it was subdivision developers were mad at local governments putting a bunch of rules on them and they wanted to develop vacant land, right? It's and like so an for anti green belt. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so for a long time, it was focused on making vacant land available to developers. And like until now, it's finally become something like, you know, with this idea of affirmatively furthering fair housing. And as we'll talk with kind of the way 
need is allocated later in the in the podcast. I think it's become something more like a with a civil rights angle, but it definitely didn't start out that way. Yeah, I did find that anecdote very useful. Pete Wilson carried the Pete Wilson carried the bill. Reagan signed it. I mean, it's like <laughs> <laughs> this is like Dukakis. I, I was, yeah. The history is fascinating because Dukakis doubled down on the 40B and threw money at it and kind of made it effective. And like, meanwhile, Reagan is, is over here in California, not doing that. <laughs> I mean, those days were weird. Generally, the, you know, the Nixon administration signed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. Like there was right. some strange stuff going on back then. So we're going to finally get to the, the first paper here in a little detail. Um, and that one is called uh, State Affordable Housing Appeals Systems and Access to Opportunity Evidence from the Northeastern United States. This was published in Housing Policy Debate. Um, in this paper, you evaluate these appeal systems in four states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. And you also compare their outcomes to New York State, which does not have one of these affordable housing appeal systems. So what did you find there? Well, we found that the evidence suggests that these systems increase the amount of deed-restricted, below-market-rate housing. We found that the Massachusetts system is particularly effective. And we also found that it seems to be effective in putting affordable housing or making housing affordable to lower-income households in higher-income areas, higher-income census tracts. Right, right. So that's, that's the big takeaway from the paper is that relative to nothing... <laughs> the 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 evidence suggests that these systems do something. Now it's correlational evidence, right? Not causal evidence. So we can't be a hundred percent sure that it is attributable to these systems um, and not something else. But the evidence is consistent with that account. Yeah, and and in Massachusetts, it had the you know highest percent uh, of units that were income restricted for low income households in in its high income neighborhoods as well, the upper income, upper middle income. Right. But I should say, we're still talking about it was around four and a half to 5% of yep. total units. And that yep. was the best of the four states. And in Massachusetts, their 40B program, you have all of those, uh, those, those rights given to developers that allow them to build, even if it doesn't, you know, meet the local zoning requirements and so forth, only in cities that have not provided that don't have at least 10% of their units income restricted, right? Yes. And it's actually the, the, now we're getting deep in the weeds. That's <laughs> what we're here for. It's, it's worse than that. <laughs> it's 10% of the units meet the requirements of the law. So if you have a mixed income project in a mixed income rental project in which 75% of the units are market rate units, mm -hmm. all of those units, all those market rate units and the below market rate units count towards the 10%. Oh. But in, in this four and a half to 5%, you're not counting those in that percentage, right? This is just for which cities are exempt right, from to get yes. out of it. That's okay. correct. Okay, okay. That, that's one of the contributions of this paper. I, I was I was going to point out that, you know, you have to hit 10% to be exempt. And yet the average is is a little under half of that in a lot of these cities. And so I was wondering, like, why aren't people building more? But it sounds like maybe a lot of them actually are hitting that 10% exemption. It's just 
or that threshold. It's just that many of those units are not actually affordable. They're just in projects that took advantage of this exemption. Yeah, and and there there has been a lot of movement towards the ten percent threshold measured as of two thousand ten. Um, so there's gonna there's now now that the twenty twenty census numbers are coming out, some municipalities may fall that were above ten percent may fall below ten percent. But we'll have to we'll have to see. And I guess while we're we're on this ten percent topic, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the data you use because it's. An interesting database and one that we don't have, I don't think, uh, in California in terms of kind of numbers of affordable units by municipality as as recorded by the state government. Yeah. So we we went to each state government and we basically said, can you share with us the number of, of, of below market rate deed restricted units in each municipality? New Jersey and Connecticut and Rhode Island all said, sure. And Massachusetts said no. And <laughs> the, reason, <Okay. laughs> the reason they said no is because of state privacy law that they believe they might have been violating if they gave us municipal level counts of hmm. deed restricted below market rate units. And so what they what they would give us were aggregated counts if we said, OK, well, these are the municipalities mm. with with so you, you above, them. Mo- above yeah above moderate incomes um, okay got it interesting so you don't know how it broke down city by city you just have the average yeah interesting i think they actually group group them for you right Nate? they just send you the aggregated yeah. data instead of a detailed data set yeah mm-hmm. okay so Massachusetts approach seems to be the most effective across a variety of metrics, um, more below market rate units in high income and low poverty neighborhoods, more low income renters living in these areas, and fewer of them are actually rent burdened. What are the different things that Massachusetts is doing that you would attribute this to? And I'll just throw in one thing that I thought was interesting, kind of calls back to an earlier an earlier interview we did with, with Professor Minji Kim, is this... So the appeals are reviewed administratively rather than judicially. And I think this just kind of, you have people who it's their job to assess the, you know, validity of these appeals and they are actually experts in this and they've been doing it for a long time, as opposed to, you know, how we do a lot of this in California is you throw it to a judge who maybe has sees a few of these a year or every decade or whatever, um, and is not an expert on these. So this, this idea of you know administrative or bureaucratic competence comes into play, but I'm, I know there's a lot more going on here. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it has to do with the four attributes that Nate just described, and like you mentioned, the expedited administrative review. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is for developers that uh, that win the appeal, they actually get the comprehensive permit. So it's a permit that consolidates everything you need from local government in order to build this project. And the timeline is fairly short for this process, because if you compare the compared this timeline with like a regular time frames of entitlement in California, it takes it can take like two to three years to receive an entitlement and an entitlement itself doesn't even authorize the construction of the of the unit. So right. You still need the permit. Yeah, so having that comprehensive building permit 
uh, granted to developers. Um, I think that's a very powerful, powerful provision here. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is that in Massachusetts, there's something called Friendly 40B, which means that um, local governments will work with developers to figure out a place and the kind of projects that both parties are interested in building. Because with um, with the 40B system in California, oh, sorry, in Massachusetts, um, local governments really have this strong incentive to try to to receive immunity from builders remedy on its on its own term. Um, there are probably similar things in other states, but I just like the sound of friendly 40B in, in Massachusetts. <laughs> Can't we all get along? Yeah, I, I th- that's a great list. I, the one thing I would add if we're comparing Massachusetts to the other northeastern states is that the standard in Massachusetts is pretty simple, right? It's this 10% threshold. It's mm. And so in New Jersey, which has, is another, has a long history with affordable housing appeal systems, the standard is very complicated and there's, a, there's long been a very complicated procedure for determining how many units a municipality is obliged to accommodate. And that results in appeals and litigation about municipal obligations. And so it's helpful, I think, to have this admittedly arbitrary uh, but simple standard. And and I think that that's one of the things that has led to the relative effectiveness of the Massachusetts system. Another thing that I think is worth mentioning is that the Massachusetts system, I think, is is very good, relatively good, at generating what I would call middle-income housing. It's middle income. There's middle income market rate housing, which is in these projects, but also the deed restricted units mm-hmm. only have to be they have to be affordable at 80 percent of area median income. Right. So we're not talking about units that are affordable to households with extremely low incomes. Now, in conjunction with housing vouchers, mm-hmm. maybe those units become affordable to, to houses, households with extremely low incomes. But one one consequence of that is that these projects can pencil for developers, right? Because the the below market rate units are subsidized almost entirely by the market rate units in these projects. So there's not a lot of mm-hmm. financial public subsidy coming into to these projects. Yeah. And I think I think in Massachusetts you can be you can be exempt or you, you can take advantage of this if your project is at least twenty five percent affordable, right? It's 25% affordable at 80% of AMI or uh, 20% affordable at, I think, 50% of AMI. But tellingly, developers take advantage much more frequently of the 25% affordable Mm -hmm. at 80% of of AMI. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, and from the Calif- for the California listeners that are involved with with our process, and for me in particular, that has seen how cities use the complexity of our process to game um, outcomes and and lobby outcomes. I think that simplicity theme is really important to to highlight. Not only the simplicity, like you mentioned, in where it applies, like where the builder's remedy applies, but also in the builder's remedy itself. So you know, if you think about SB thirty five here that's kind of a very light version of what a builder's remedy could be. 
um, you know, the overriding local zoning. And I don't think 40B has prevailing wage or other kind of requirements that SB 35 projects have to have. To have. Also, Nick, I think you've mentioned to me before, like the, Im- the kind of spillover impacts of the standardized comprehensive permitting process. Is that, is that something, am I remembering that correctly? That other non-40B projects are able to use this as well? Yeah, well, so, so one of the things you hear a lot if you participate in debates about California housing policy is that developers are very reluctant to sort of challenge local governments with which they maybe have mm-hmm. ongoing mm-hmm. Yeah. relationships. There are There's a group of developers, a, a set of developers in Massachusetts, that basically 40B is, their, is sort of their bread and butter. It's to their advantage to be able to credibly threaten to use the 40B process to build a project in a municipality. This goes back to what Echo was saying before about friendly 40B projects, right? Municipalities have an incentive to work with developers to make to to make sure that projects that are acceptable to the to local residents get built. But also, um, there's not the same disincentive to sort of go up for a developer to go up against a municipality, right? It can, in a sense, be a win-win for a developer. If a developer doesn't want to build a 40B project, they say, we're going to build a 40B project. If you don't let us build the project we want to build. <laughs> and, and then there's That's sort of the worst, unfriendly 40B yeah, Their worst case scenario is that they build a, a 40B project, which from my perspective is the best case scenario because then you get below market rate units in there as well. Yeah. So in terms of effectiveness compared to other northeastern states, how does the builders rem- how, do, how do the details of the builders remedy in Massachusetts you think shape its effectiveness there? I mean, because in other states the builders remedy isn't as strong. You know, I don't think it's as much that the builders remedy itself isn't as strong. It's it's that it's harder to get to the the builders remedy or as in the case of mm. Connecticut you have to it, so Connecticut requires um, some units to be affordable below eighty percent of a, a fifty of, probably yeah some fifty, 50 so, so it's harder to make projects pencil also Connecticut I believe does not provide a comprehensive permit right so you mm-hmm. still have to navigate multiple permitting processes in order mm. to get the projects approved right. And then in, in New Jersey, it's just frequently you end up arguing about what the municipality's liability, responsibility to accommodate its fair share actually is. Mm. <laughs> Simplicity seems to be the name of the game. And mm-hmm. I mean, not to be too critical of California's approach recently, because I think we're at least <laughs> moving in the right direction in some respects, but we are certainly not making it less complicated uh, in, the, in the recent years. So I, I think it's a good time to move on to the next paper because we still have a bit to get through. And this one is called Exclusionary Zoning and the Limits of Judicial Impact. And you both authored this as well and published it in the Journal of Planning, Education and Research. Actually in 2018, about a, a little over a year before the paper we just talked about. But this one's looking at the judiciary's role in all of this and whether these kinds of fair share state interventions are less effective maybe, or maybe more, when they originate in the courts as opposed to the legislature. So you're comparing northern New Jersey to New York, which is just on the other side of the border and are part of the same metro area, and southern New Jersey 
with Philadelphia, which is also just same metro, but two sides of uh, a border. That's actually different, different, different metro. New Jersey is... Oh, those are different metro areas? Yeah. Okay, okay. In the case of Philadelphia? Two. Yeah. New Jersey is such a cool state. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. They're not... The northern and southern New Jersey are different metro areas, but the southern New Jersey and Philadelphia are the same, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If I didn't say that right, I turns out this. turns out a lot of Philadelphia is in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so, New Jersey is important here because its affordable housing appeal system came out of the judiciary, out of the courts, and specifically two really well known cases in you know planning world known as Mount Laurel One and Mount Laurel Two. So, can you give us a little background on what those cases were about and how those shaped planning um, of below market housing in the state? Sure, I can take this one. Um, you are the lawyer. <laughs> so the the Mount Laurel case is a very famous case in, in land use law circles. Um, and the Southern Burlington County NAACP sued the town of Mount Laurel. So this was uh, very clearly a civil rights case. And mm-hmm. the, the problem was that Mount Laurel was making it impossible to build a housing development that would have been affordable to families with low and moderate incomes. And so it went all the way up to the New Jersey Supreme Court. And the court provided a novel interpretation of the New Jersey state constitution. So the court said that a developing municipality, although the court didn't define what a developing municipality was, a developing municipality was obliged to affirmatively afford the possibility of low low and moderate income housing development commensurate with its fair share of the regional need for low and moderate income housing. So we've got developing municipalities that have to, quote, affirmatively afford low and moderate income housing, a uh, potential for low and moderate income housing development commensurate with their, quote, fair share of the, quote, regional need. We've got these four undefined terms that the court says municipalities <laughs> have to have to now abide by this ruling without giving a ton of guidance. And also in this first This decision, is sounding kind of like CEQA to me. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting like echoes of CEQA here. This, this decision is issued in 1975. And um, there's also no builder's remedy that the, the court mm-hmm. announces. So the court doesn't say what the remedy is. It just says that we expect that Mount Laurel and other municipalities will revise their zoning ordinances to accommodate low and moderate income housing. That expectation proved to be somewhat optimistic. Um, <laughs> and eight years later, the, the court heard the Mount Laurel 2 case and citing widespread noncompliance with the rule that it had announced in the first Mount Laurel decision, the court established a system that was intended to expedite adjudication of fair share disputes by lower courts and it lowered the burden of proof for parties challenging exclusionary zoning ordinances. And it emphasized that the builder's remedy would be readily available. The court also said we would much rather that the legislature take care of this. But the legislature didn't take care of it, uh, or at least hadn't taken, taken care of it in the intervening eight years. And so the court's hope here was to push the legislature to take some action. 
Yeah, and, and I was talking with Pavo just before this about how it's strange how well known Mount Laurel is for all its complexity and, and you know, based on the previous paper, not all that much effectiveness compared to the 40B, which prior to reading your paper, I don't think I'd ever heard of. So broadly speaking, since we're comparing this to New York and, and Pennsylvania, how does the approach in New Jersey, you know, how they address exclusionary zoning in particular and below market and, and middle income housing, how does it differ from New Jersey's approach? So in New York, uh, the, the highest court in the state, also in 1975, the same year of the first Mount Laurel decision, issued a decision that sounded a lot like the Mount Laurel decision, Mount Laurel one. Mm -hmm. But unlike the New Jersey State Supreme Court, the New York court never followed up that first decision with a second decision actually giving teeth to the ruling. And so New York's, New York's courts have basically not done anything to okay. address the issue. In Pennsylvania, for a long time, even before the 1970s, Pennsylvania courts would require local governments that were in the path of urban development to accommodate a mix of land uses, regardless of, of whether they, they accommodated deed-restricted below-market-rate housing. They still had to accommodate a mix of land uses. It couldn't all be, for example, detached single-family housing. And that, that uh, strain of judicial doctrine in Pennsylvania continued throughout the 1970s and into the 1980s and even beyond. Uh, with some twists and turns. So th that's sort of the breakdown, right? You've got New Jersey, Mount Laurel, um, particularly after the Mount Laurel 2 decision in 1983, when it gets, when the law gets some teeth, New York, nothing. And Pennsylvania, <laughs> you've got builder's remedies for uh, developers of multifamily housing, but that multifamily housing does not need to include deed restricted below market rate units. Okay. And so for this paper, maybe that helps explain why, you know, you were studying what you did in this paper, which was the production of apartments and townhomes. So not looking at below market or anything like that, just apartments and townhomes. And those were used because these housing types are a fairly good proxy for household income. The people who live in apartments and townhomes tend to have lower incomes than the residents of detached homes. So between these three areas, um, what differences did you find, or I guess four areas, what did you find between New Jersey jurisdictions and those in, in New York and Philadelphia? Yeah, so in New Jersey, we find that we saw a 27% increase in townhome stock relative to New York. So we're talking about Northern New Jersey versus New York. Mm -hmm. and a 7% increase in apartment units in northern New Jersey relative to the New York state municipalities right across the border. Um, we don't find any statistically significant differences between southern, the southern New Jersey municipalities and Pennsylvania when we're looking at townhome and apartment production in the years following Mount Laurel II versus the years before Mount Laurel II. Yeah, can I just jump in and, and compliment the research design of both of these papers? I think uh, kind of budding scholars should check them out. I think they do a really good job of using this metropolitan areas that span two states to kind of assess what we can tell about the differences in housing development in those two states that have these different systems. And they're kind of very upfront about 
the non-experimental nature of this and the fact that, you know, these are exogenous to the metropolitan activity, but like they're in two states. So they're, they're facing different challenges that you can't control for. I wonder whether you had thoughts on kind of the New Jersey half of Philadelphia or the New Jersey section of New York and other ways they differ that wouldn't be attributable to these, to these housing, the state level housing laws. How much did you worry about that when you were doing these projects? Oh, quite a bit. <laughs> uh, we, we have some appendices dealing with, with some of the potential differences. And I mean, I think you're, you're right, Pavo, that um, in general, you know, we can't really say with, with certainty what it is about any given state that is driving variation, right? There are, there are myriad differences in, in policy in particular when you're looking. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that this cross-border comparison does pretty well, I think, is this, many of the socioeconomic forces driving, are, the regional socioeconomic forces are the same, right? Because these, mm -hmm. these jurisdictions are all in the same region. But of course, there are concerns about selection, self-selection, right? That people, maybe people live in New York, in New York state because they like some mix of the policies in New York state relative to the mix of policies in New Jersey right across the border. Mm -hmm. And so that may sort of have impacts on housing development that are not necessarily attributable to, for example, the Mount Laurel decision. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that that we worry about and that we really can't control for. There are other things like tax rates that we can control for and that we do try to control for in the appendices. Um, but yes. Yeah. And, and in, in general, both papers take a somewhat similar strategy in terms of just comparing the differences between the two states within these metropolitan areas. And that's kind of the most effective figures that I saw were figures or tables were just kind of the, the raw data kind of how is townhome development differed in these two places. But then you get into a regression framework where you look at, is it tracked or municipal level variation? And I guess you do different different ways to worry about it at a smaller geography and control for different things. So that I think is an effective approach. That brings back a lot of memory, Nate. <laughs> the, New the, the, the New Jersey paper is the very first research project um, on state planning that I've worked on. And mm. Yeah, that kind of just opened the door for me. <laughs> Cutting your teeth on all the on all the hard data work. I mean, something that that I sort of took away from this was, you know, we've been debating here in California recently, you know, should we have some kind of like constitutional amendment or law that says there is a, a like a constitutional right to housing? And I think, you know, just in general terms, that sounds good. But it really shows these cases really show that like the details matter a lot. And just saying that there's this right to housing, you know, looking at it from the perspective of New Jersey versus um, in New York, like it, it, it can mean very different things. And in practice, the policies you assign to this, the, the obligations you assign make all the difference in, in some respect. So right. um, yeah, I, absolutely. I, that was that was a big takeaway for me. Well, and even I mean, even with this paper where it's like, is the is the judiciary doing it and giving it to the legislature? But even when the legislature does it, like here, they're giving it to the bureaucracy. And so, I mean, that's, you know, something that has been in the news of late, right? Is kind of there's all these new laws governing California's housing element process. And then the bureaucracy's maybe not enforcing them, 
Yeah, so let's let's move on to California. Oh, segue. Uh, and this will be a chance for for Echo to to comment a little more because she was the lead author on this one. So this is a report on uh, this is it's titled Accessibility, Affordability, and Allocation of Housing Targets to California's Local Governments. Both of you are authors as well as um, Jae Hong Kim and Doug Houston, or rather Houston. And so here in California. We have this system where the state forecasts population growth every eight years. Um, the housing needed to accommodate that growth gets divvied up between cities um, and unincorporated areas by regional governments as part of the regional housing needs assessment or RENA. Then every local government in the state has to create something called a housing element that lays out where all of that housing will go for the whole we're really seeing the the lack of simplicity in in our system already, <laughs> and that just hearing this introduction. <laughs> yeah, the the housing element has to identify specific sites that are viable for development or redevelopment, and so we've already kind of covered this a bit. So maybe just focusing on on the differences here. But what what does this, if anything, share with the northeastern approach? Yeah, um, I mean, one big similarity here is that you have housing obligations coming from the state to local governments. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the housing obligations are expressed in different forms, in California, it's like a planning target. And then in Massachusetts, it's like a percentage of the housing stock that needs to be affordable unit. Um, and the other similarity, if it counts, is that there are some sort of enforcement mechanisms in both types of state interventions that compel local governments to accommodate these housing obligations. Mm-hmm. So in California, like at least now, there are consequences of not producing a compliant housing plan. Um, and in Massachusetts and other northeastern states, we've talked about it a lot. Um, you have builder's remedy and this abuse system. And then in terms of outcomes, since this is what we're really concerned with, where do we stand on this over? And maybe we should you know, focus on before the current cycle, before all of the reforms that have gone into place. What has the RENA process, the housing element process in California produced? Um, well, actually, before I get to outcome, let me just point out another differences, because mm-hmm. in so in California, the housing targets include below market rate housing and also uh, market rate units, uh, whereas in the northeastern states, the housing targets are mainly below market rate mm-hmm. units. So that's I think that's another difference scholars tend to pr- point out a lot. And then in terms of outcomes, yeah, you're right. We don't really have data to assess the effectiveness of the current system. And hopefully we have. Um, I think HCD is doing some work in the right direction in terms of collecting these different types of data. But looking at previous planning periods, um, I think the consensus is that the majority of the housing units that were built in previous planning periods did not occur in the sites that are included as suitable mm-hmm. or available in their housing plan. Shout out to, to Pavo and Chris Elmendorf and their <laughs> well, co-authors. Well, no, to, to Salim and Sid, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, Chris came up with the idea. Um, 
Yeah, and I was going to say we don't have a nice metropolitan area that's that sprawls into Arizona or Nevada, right? So we don't have this um, control Lake group. Lake Tahoe. That we can compare what are you Lake talking Tahoe. about? Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, yeah, I was actually talking to Chris Elmendorf yesterday about this um, in terms of rezonings as one of the tangible outcomes that we could expect from the from the housing element process, right? So if if cities are forced to accommodate some some housing in their plan and they don't have enough space, they they need to rezone some land for more housing. And he had actually already asked HCD for data. They collected data on rezonings from the fifth cycle. And so they a total across the state of 35,000 units were space for 35 units were created but through rezonings in the in the fifth cycle, right? The the total housing need in the fifth cycle was a million units. So uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's like a huge uh, a huge impact if we 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 generated thirty five five thousand more units. Of Just space. to make sure everyone's on the same page, HCD is the Housing and Community Development Department, it's the state's housing department, um, and they are kind of charged with overseeing and enforcing these housing elements as they're developed and and after um, they've been implemented. Should we turn to the report? Yeah, yeah. I, I did want to just add one more thing, though, which is that not only are you know these plans not good at identifying places where development actually occurs, but they don't seem to be a very effective at encouraging adequate development with most cities. Many cities having, I think by all of our standards anyway, uh, goals, that, targets that were too low, production targets that were not sufficient to meet the growing demand. Um, and still failing to meet those targets by a very wide margin in most places. Um, with the exception of Beverly Hills, got to give them credit. They did meet their target of three housing units in eight years. They blew past their target. <laughs> well, well success. Good, luck, good luck on the next cycle. <laughs> yes. Keep up, the, keep up the good work. I, I think their, their target, because it was obviously politically manipulated and way too low. Last time, I'm pretty sure it's about a thousand times higher now, which is a little more appropriate. So, Pavo, did you want to ask this question about uh, the different approaches? Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, let's turn to the report. I think it's a great uh, analysis and a really kind of important big picture analysis. I'm really glad you did it. Um, it has two parts. So the first part, you compare the allocation method in Southern California so can maybe you summarize the way that the, the regional government allocated housing and the two approaches you compare it to? Yeah, so in the report, I'm looking at the,
Um, so this is the approach they took. Pavel, do you have a question? No, yeah. So I was so then you you in your work you compare it to other potential approaches yeah. to see how effective they would have been. Yeah. So um, we just come up with two other much simpler approach. One of them we call it the twenty percent rule, which pretty much uh, resembles Massachusetts ten percent threshold. So we're saying the target will be set as twenty percent of the housing stock as of twenty ten. Um, and then the other approach, we slightly modified this 20% rule. We have these indicators of job accessibility, and we rank the municipalities based on their job accessibilities. And then basically for the top half of the municipalities in this ranking, we, we set the housing targets as 25% of local housing stock as of 2010. And for the other half, we set a slightly lower housing target, which is, I believe, 15% of uh, local housing stock as of 2010. So we have these three different approaches and look at how the allocation outcomes under each allocation method correlate with different local characteristics that we're interested in, such as access to jobs, access to transit, and um, access to high opportunity areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, how, how fair is the fair share allotment that cities are getting question? And so what, what did you find? Was the complicated method superior to the simple method? <laughs> how could it not be? <laughs> <laughs> well, surprisingly, it's, it's not the most superior <laughs> method, the complicated one. Um, so what we found is that under the more complicated multi-criteria allocation scenario, the outcomes are not really associated with transit accessibility anymore in a regression context. So that's after mm. we control for several other local characteristics. So even though transit accessibility is one indicator used in this allocation process, um, but when we look at the allocation outcome, it's doesn't really, it's not really strongly correlated with transit accessibility. Mm -hmm. huh. That's one thing. And the other issue we found is that a group, a set of high income cities in the region actually get a much lower average allocation outcomes compared to lower income municipalities. And that that's potentially problematic because income is an important proxy for socioeconomic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And just to make sure I'm I'm understanding this correctly, uh, you're looking at the allocations that were actually made for the the first one. And so, in the case of Skag, if if I'm understanding the, like timing correctly, this is after we had this whole local fight about. You know, there was the initial plan where a lot more housing was allocated inland in San Bernardino County and, and uh, Riverside County. And then kind of surprisingly, a lot of local politicians here stood up and said, no, we should actually have more housing in Los Angeles and Orange County and places like that. So this outcome where you're finding that yeah. the, it was not really associated with transit accessibility and things like that, that was after we moved a lot of the housing inland or, or toward the coasts. So even after that, right, the outcomes are still not good. Yeah, that's what the press called the coastal plan. Mm -hmm. um, and that was released in March 2020. And we know there's 
there was an appeal process that come that came after, even though there there wasn't that much change made to make to the initial allocations. Yeah, actually, so I had a question about that. So, so you did use the the final plan because you know in that plan, my big problem with it was forty percent of the need was still allocated based on like the way they had done things in the past at Skag, which was this local inputs process, um, which was like a black box that basically asked cities how much they intended to grow and then use that as their housing target. So I think it would be interesting to look at just the job because the other 60% was assigned based on jobs, accessibility and transit accessibility. Um, and so did you break that in, apart at all? Um, not in this report, um, mm. but for the other allocation scenario that I constructed, um, the third one that I mentioned, which mm -hmm. consider job accessibility um, in the allocation process. That one, we found positive corre correlations between the allocation outcomes and job accessibility. And we don't see that municipalities at different income levels are receiving significantly different allocation outcomes. Mm -hmm. So for that, I think it's an improvement compared to the multi-criteria allocation outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it's also much more administratively simpler. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I wonder whether you, you, either of you have perspectives on the other regional approaches to this, to this problem. I mean, one feature of the California system is that regional governments get to invent their own methodology for allocating housing within their, within their region. And so every, you know, San Diego, say Sacramento, Bay Area are taking different approaches. Have you looked into those and do you have any thoughts? I've briefly looked into those. Um, I know the Bay Area is still in the process of finalizing their allocations, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I've looked at San Diego and also other slightly smaller regions that did the allocations before, before SCAC did it, because different regions also have different timelines mm -hmm. and some of the regions don't really need to do it right now. So, a lot of other regions also use this multi-criteria method, but is is not as complicated as the one that Skag is using right. for this cycle. But like this multi-criteria formula, it's like it's like a norm adopted by uh, regional governments. Mm -hmm. And I, I think sort of more broadly, it's easy to understand the appeal of these multi-criteria methods, right? There are, the, the world is really complicated and we want to take into account all of these different considerations in policymaking processes. But I think one thing that, that our work highlights is that there are trade-offs between complexity and simplicity, obviously, but one thing that can get lost is by taking into account all of these different considerations, you may end up with less housing in general, and in particular, less deed-restricted below market rate housing than you would with a simpler approach that maybe doesn't uh, take into account the, the the infinite complexity. So like a, like a one-size-fits-all approach. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let, let, let's say more like uh, you go into the store and you buy the pair of pants that fits you more closely rather than going to a tailor to get a custom-made. <laughs> I do think, I mean, to give credit to the RENA housing element process here in California, I do think 
you could say one drawback of the that just we're going to shoot for 10% or whatever percent of housing to be in- income restricted is that doesn't really respond to future demand more broadly. Because you could just say, well, we're going to build nothing except income restricted housing until we get to that threshold. But that's not actually the only housing that's needed. And, you know, lots of there's demand for these places to grow. And so I could go down the list of reasons California's approach is bad and, and has all these problems. But I do think that seems like one strength, you know, I guess this just gets back to the fact that ours is very planning based and there is a role for planning in all of this. And, and maybe it shouldn't just be looking at, um, you know, percentages at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Or or it shouldn't be 10 percent of your housing has to be deed restricted. It should be maybe if, you know, up to 20 percent of your housing stock. If you if you're not if you're not accommodating up to 20 percent of your housing, an additional 20% of housing stock as compared to 10 years ago, then there's some kind of access to a builder's remedy. I mean, there are a lot, I think there are a lot of different ways to structure a simpler rule. I certainly don't think that the the state affordable housing appeal system is by any stretch of the imagination, mm-hmm. the best way to do it. Um, but I do think it, it sort of points to some of the benefits yeah, of yeah. simpler approaches. For a planning approach it, to work well, it really depends on whether local governments, whether all local governments are genuinely wanting to plan for more housing. Otherwise, you just have more more way to be creative to do right. what you want, to, to achieve your agenda. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, it brings up a lot of, of issues also with kind of historical legacy of where transit is located and kind of where the job centers are. Um, I think that maybe something if people are still interested in this topic, the Paris example is also quite interesting. They have a 20% below market rate type approach to municipalities in Paris, um, but it's also coupled with funding. I mean, that's one thing that the California's process reveals is we definitely don't have enough money to build all the housing need that we've allocated for in terms of low income units across the state. Um, but I, so we'll, we'll, there's a good paper by Yona Freemark that we can put in the show notes about the Paris approach, um, because I want to turn now to the second half of the report where you analyze implementation, which is, I think, an interesting approach. And so you look at both the need and the enforcement, considering three types of enforcement, planning mandates, zoning reform mandates, and zoning overrides. So maybe first you can uh, tell us about those three approaches and then kind of how you illustrate um, the differences with with two case studies. Yeah, so planning mandates is it's a mandate that requires local governments to plan for housing. Like in California, they are required to generate a housing plan to illustrate how they're going to accommodate future housing growth. And zoning reform mandates um, is states like California and also Minnesota, they require that local zoning regulations are also need to be consistent with their housing plans. So that's like one step ahead. So in addition to generate these local housing plans, you need to bring your local land use and zoning policies inconsistent with your plans. And then for Zoning overrides is something that uh, we've talked about, like in Massachusetts, developers of qualifying projects can bypass local zoning regulations and move forward their projects. Hmm. So like an appeal system. And so with the zoning reform mandates, examples would be 
is like, would you consider the ADU legislation a zoning reform mandate, or is this more like a SB 50 overriding zoning near transit approach? Um, I would say in California, the example is that um, when you update your local housing plans and mm -hmm. you realize you need additional zoning capacity to accommodate your housing targets, then you are required to rezone. to complete. Yeah, you're, you're required to rezone. Mm -hmm. And then so you compare Fullerton and the city of Orange, both <laughs> located in Orange County, interesting places, and kind of maybe tell me about the, the context of the two cities and what you found in terms of the three approaches there. Yeah, these two cities just really stood out when I look at their arena allocations, which are very different. But these two cities are socioeconomically very similar to each other. They have similar population size, similar level of median household income, and they both have commuter rail. And when I look at the numbers, they have similar level of job accessibility and uh, my family lives in Anaheim so I know they are really close to each other <laughs> so when I see that their arena numbers are drastically different it just caught my attention so Fullerton so with all these similar similarities Fullerton received um, arena allocation of over 13,000 and Orange, the city of Orange received an allocation of under 4,000. So, wow. uh, and that comes from the multi criteria. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there must have been a lot of this local input affecting those, those numbers. Um, Orange, I also noticed in your descriptive statistics, Orange is a lot whiter than Fullerton and slightly richer. So, uh, maybe slightly whiter. I, but, but I believe. Yeah, I, I believe that the reduction was due to the putative equity yeah. adjustment. Yeah, that so SCAG. Yeah, so what happened is that Orange, the city of Orange, have slightly more than fifty percent of the population that lived in these areas that are considered as uh, low resourced, high poverty, and segregated. Mm -hmm. So. GAG applied this equity adjustment and significantly reduced the allocation targets for the city of Orange. Yep, interesting. But I, I think it, it again shows how these efforts to tailor policy, even to address equity concerns, can um, potentially yeah. not function right. in the way you want, right? If you if if a city is very segregated then areas are going to then some areas are going to show up as as higher segregation that's going to potentially make the equity adjustment results in in lower units almost going against the right and and when the when the kind of subunits or the city the subunits of the allocation the cities are very diverse in terms of their composition if they were all homogenous then it would be easy yep. to allocate i mean this is something that's come up with right. The city of LA, which was like very pro, sure we can take a lot of housing need. We'll take it. We'll take half of the region's housing need, but then they just put it all downtown or kind of avoid certain neighborhoods. So bigger cities and kind of more segregated cities are more easily able to accommodate this need without affecting their rich constituents. So then, what did you find in terms of the the three implementation approaches in these two places? So in the analysis, I actually just look at two implementation approaches. Hmm. The first one, I call it housing plan standards. So this one assumes that developers can just build on areas that are 
designated for multifamily use and and the appropriate densities. Um, so I basically look at what current plans in these two cities, what what sites are are designated for multifamily use, and then and then in the scenario I have this high density scenario which developers can build at 25 units per acre, and I have this low density scenario. Uh, which developers can build at 15 units per acre. And there are different thresholds of development probability. So these uh-huh. are all just hypothetical numbers to get an idea how many units could potentially be built on the sites that are designated for multifamily use uh-huh. in current general plans. So this uh-huh. is one, the first implementation scenario. And for the second implementation scenario, um, I looked at something called targeted zoning override. So basically, we have areas that are defined as near jobs and transit. And then in these areas, we look at parcels or sites that are currently not designated for multifamily use. And we assume that developers can overwrite the zoning designations in these non-multifamily use parcels and mm-hmm. build, build their project. And based on that assumption, we estimate um, the development of p- potential in these areas. So what we get is that if we go by the general plan standards for implementation, uh, the development potential will be much lower than the development potential estimated for a targeted zoning override <laughs> mm-hmm. implementation scenario, which is probably to be expected. And, and for, for in the case of Fullerton with arena number of over 13,000, the city needs to substantially rezone to higher density in order to meet this arena number. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it will be slightly easier for this uh in the case of the city of orange but still um if we only go by this general plan standards they can only meet this the city of orange can only meet its obligation when um the development probability is high mm-hmm. in the city yeah it's really interesting so this this idea of if rezoning doesn't happen there's no impact and then kind of where does the rezoning happen and I guess the kind of the virtue of the of the the current process is that the city there is local control about where rezoning happens um, versus kind of a, a top down you know forced rezonings near near transit or something. But you know if if they don't do the rezoning, then there will be no no impact. Yeah, if they don't do the rezoning, then then what? <laughs> right. That's what we're about to find out, I think, in a lot of our cities. <laughs> Cliffhanger. Stay yeah. tuned for the next yeah. two years. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think we can, we've completed our odyssey here from the Northeast and back. Uh, is there anything we missed? Any, like, there's so much here. Is there any kind of summing up thoughts either of you have on, on all of this work and how it all fits together? I mean, I, I, I think just to circle back to, to what I said at the beginning, there are really sort of two ways of, of thinking about state intervention, um, broadly speaking. I think there is intervention on the planning side and intervention on the building side. And you don't they don't necessarily need to be paired, right? You, you could 
allow for more building without requiring local governments to do any more planning. Um, that is, in fact, what we see in in Massachusetts. That's an approach that hasn't really been mm-hmm. con- much considered in mm-hmm. California. And in fact, I think in many Western states. And so I think that sort of th- that dichotomy helps to sort of frame these these much more complicated policy debates and in thinking about sort of how how we might want to facilitate development of housing sufficient to ensure or at least improve affordability for many people. I know that California is not the only place that debates local control. It's it's something that's being talked about and debated everywhere, but it does seem like our approach is sort of designed to retain it as much as possible, even when the state intervenes. So it's not just saying, you know, developers can build wherever they want if you're not meeting these targets. It's saying you have to build a lot of housing. A lot of it has to be at these affordability levels, but we're still going to leave it in your hands to determine what that looks like. And so, again, I guess we'll see how that turns out. But I think that's that's an important distinction there. Yeah, but I think that's also where the conundrum in California kicks in because you you have this system designed to be retained as much as local control or flexibility as possible. Mm -hmm. But then you also have these different layers of requirements and rules saying that how how you are going to present your site inventory, how you're going to when, how you're going to rezone your properties when this needs to be done. And, and if all these are not done, you're going to have these consequences. Like you have all these requirements on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you're saying like you still you can you can still plan for your own community. And in my interviews with local planners and council members, I, I, I really feel like they are scratching their head in terms of how they're going to get this mm-hmm. done. And mm-hmm. to me, this is just like a very, like this, I don't know how this conflict can be resolved in the system, but it it's like, it's really intriguing. Fodder for a future paper. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, it's hard not to get depressed. I wish we had the, I wish SB 35 was more like 40B in terms of zone, you know, because SB 35 as the punishment you know the projects still need to be zoning compliant. I think if they if they didn't have to be zoning compliant, then it would be a much more effective s- stick. Yeah, to 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 me, SB thirty five really sort of sums up the <laughs> the one of the major problems with housing in in California, which is the SB thirty five is a big deal because it compels municipalities to approve projects that already <laughs> comply with mm-hmm. their zoning. <laughs> Please just follow the law. Yeah, that's all we ask. Okay, well, Echo and Nick, thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks so much. And, and thanks for the great research. We'll link to everything and I recommend people check it out. Thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. Morantz and Dr. Zhang's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and you can find Pavo there at L. Pavo. Thanks for listening to the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and thanks for telling your friends, family, colleagues, students, and passersby about us, and for stealing their phones and subscribing them to the show without their knowledge, whatever it takes. See you next time.